All right, so back on Unstandardized English, and I realized in the last episode I didn't even say the title of the podcast, so uh, probably bad form. But anyway, uh, today we're talking about the language of greater control. Do you know what that means? I didn't until the person I'm going to speak to told me about it. But it makes sense once you learn a little bit about it. Uh, it's really tied to official language policy in different countries and different uh, regions. And basically, um, and Brendan is going to clear this up for me, but the way I understand it, it's the idea that because English is the language of commerce and other things, that it just makes sense to use it as a default in a lot of contexts. And it's part of the reason that I have had a career in English language teaching, right? The idea that English is the language of commerce or whatever, as if that is some, some, some default that has just occurred without destruction and violence to make it happen. But yeah, this is something where I hadn't, thought, I hadn't heard of this phrase, but it makes sense and it aligns with what I would expect to be the case in a lot of places. And Brennan's going to tell us all about it and how it's really a problem. So enjoy. So, welcome everyone to another episode of Unstandardized English. This is JPB Gerald, as you know, because I already said that in my intro. Um, I'm with Brendan DeCoster today. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland College Park in International Education Policy. He holds a master's in education from the University of Alberta, Canada, and he has worked as ESL, EFL teacher, primary tertiary, tertiary levels in South Korea and the United States. South Korea being the same place where I started my career, so I always find what, that. What? Exactly. Um, and he is currently working on a dissertation that examines practices, understandings, and experiences of academic integrity among international students in higher education in the United States. So, welcome, friend. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so before we get into what we're going to talk about today, can you tell me a little bit more about some of your background, um, some of the things that folks listening in might want to know about where you're coming from and talking about these things? Certainly, yeah. Um, I, you know, the majority of my background is indeed as EFL slash ESL slash however you want to define the acronym teacher. Um, the great majority of my experience has been in South Korea, as you said. Um, I also have some experience working with people individually in Canada, a ton of experience working at the university level here in the United States, both uh, at the University of Oregon and uh, more recently here in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I have been very, very focused on uh, the idea of academic integrity, particularly what constitutes plagiarism and how that affects international students here in the United States, uh, particularly looking at how uh, ideas of language proficiency, cultural familiarity, etc., affect people's knowledge and understanding of what we mean by academic integrity here in the United States. Um, and really, the big corollary there is how frequently people who are not from the United States get pegged for academic integrity violations, things like plagiarism or contract cheating, etc., while people from the United States might not get pegged for the same 
things. Um, so that's really what I'm looking at in my dissertation. Now, that's kind of uh, the backbone of what I'm doing there, but uh, a big focus that I have is uh, international education policy. And as part of that, really the backbone of international education policy is development policy. And the unfortunate aspect of that is uh, really that people tend to focus on the economics and uh, basically people running multiple regressions and saying, hey, looks like this intervention is going to be very effective and so therefore we're going to use that. Most recently, um, the Nobel Prize in economics was given to Esther Duflo and uh, Banerjee and a few others. Uh, and that was really for randomized control trials in education, uh, particularly with uh, a developmental aspect. So this really is uh, people saying like, hey, we're going to do this one educational intervention and uh, you know, we're going to do it here, we're not going to do it over there, and we're going to see uh, which group of kids actually gets you know, higher in terms of education skills based on standardized test X. And based on that, we're going to say that's our recommendation and that's where the education funding goes. So in and amongst all of those things uh, lie all of my interests. And I'm talking a lot and I will stop next. Thanks. Well, I want to ask you some more about some of that before we get into the, the main topic. So um, academic, academic integrity, I, you know, it's an interesting concept because I know, I'm sure the same was true of you when you studied in your undergrad or in your master's. You know, you had to sign, you know, honor pledge or whatever. My school oh, yeah. call, call it honor pledge. Um, and the, um, I know when I started to teach international students here in the United States, it was a totally different concept to that. Um, yes, and much. so what, ha I mean, you're doing research on it now, obviously, or you're, or you're analyzing it, but what have you noticed, like base, just basic stuff before you get into all of it, or the differences in the way that people understand the concept of academic integrity here and in other places? So I think the biggest thing to think about there is really the singularity of academic integrity in the United States versus the rest of the world. Um, there are definitely some similarities, uh, particularly when you look at, uh, I think, it, it, the countries that probably have the uh, greatest similarity in terms of their focus, in terms of research, would be uh, the United States, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and to a lesser extent, uh, the UK. And when I say the UK, I'm largely focusing on the English portion of things right there, not necessarily uh, Scotland or Wales or even Northern Ireland. Um, and to a lesser extent, uh, Europe particularly, uh, the Netherlands has had a long history with this, uh, Germany, and uh, right now the Ukraine as well. Sorry, I, I, yeah, not the Ukraine, but Ukraine. I apologize for that, and there's one of those instances where the definite article really should not be used. So my apologies to Ukraine. Um, when we look at this there, there is a singularity of the American perspective in terms of how much we look at writing and ideas, uh, homework, whatever it might be, as some sort of property. And so anytime somebody has asked for, you know, uh, unwarranted help, uh, anytime somebody has submitted the same assignment for two classes or used the same assignment as a basis for two classes, that ends up being perceived 
by professors around here and teaching staff as literally a crime. And it is treated as such by a large uh, portion of teaching staff in the United States. That is not, that is decidedly not the case throughout the rest of the world. Throughout the rest of the world, really, uh, it's treated as, uh, I, I, I can't say anything definitively from the rest of the world, but I can say that there are a multitude of ways of dealing with it in the rest of the world. And in fact, there are a lot of researchers out there, Diane Pecorari, um, I'm thinking Alistair Pennycook, uh, McConey, a bunch of others, who have looked at uh, academic integrity violations as we would think of them in the United States as, in fact, being a stage in learning how to write or developing a language voice. That is to say, a stage of patch writing or emulating what uh, you might see as being a very, very useful stage in terms of learning a language. And yet, we treat that here as really a form of stealing. So I think that's the biggest part uh, to think about here in the United States, is the uniqueness of our perspective of words and speech as property. So one thing that I think based on that is that I remember, you know, being taught to write essays when I was a kid. And, you know, one of the things that you know, you, you don't really start to do anything original until you're learning more, you know, complex techniques. And when you're writing, basically, what, what's the first thing you write? It's like a book report, right? There's nothing. Oh, yeah. There's nothing particularly original going on in a book report. You're basically recapping the plot, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the funny thing there is that's the majority of what you do in a lot of your assignments and other things, too. Right. And that's, that, that's some of your earliest publications, too, is basically reviews, book reports. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, it's like I've gone full circle, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm in doctoral studies and some of the homework I'm doing, it's like, here, put it into this formula and tell me what these people said and only use these words and that's it. And I'm just like, ah, I can do that. I think it's been like 30 years since I had to do stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, and what's interesting is that if people come from other countries and they move to the United States or another country like Canada, but like, you know, focusing mostly on the American context, we're telling them and they want to come here and they want to get, let's say, a doctorate or something like that. Uh, we're, telling, we're telling them, you need to learn, unlearn what, we've, what you've learned as far as creating language in this way, but now you need to relearn it when you're doing doctoral work. It's a whole... Uh, it, 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 do, it does not seem like it's actually supportive of these individuals. Let's put it, you know, lightly. <laughs> Amen to that. Beyond that, um, who's teaching it? I right. think that's the biggest question. Is, uh, you know, there are these expectations, and there are these standards that people are held to. Um, I can speak to my host institution right now. Uh, at the University of Maryland, any graduate student, so master's degree or higher, if a person is found to have uh, engaged in any kind of academic misconduct, and by person, I'm specifically referring to the student because these rules do not apply to teaching staff, faculty, researchers, etc., which, again, is problematic, but um, anybody at the master's level or higher, if they are found to have committed plagiarism, and here, plagiarism is defined as anything that the teaching staff or professor uh, finds it to be, 
whether or not that person has defined it in the syllabus, etc. Um, that is considered plagiarism and or academic misconduct, and that uh, student who has been accused of such things is now found liable of that. The immediate uh, punishment for that, that is to say the standard punishment, is expulsion from the university. Uh, no second chances, no nothing. So the question right there is, well, how are they learning about this? How are people actually coming to understand this? How are people actually uh, learning what this means? And the sad fact is, well, they're largely not. Uh, it's just not discussed very much. It's discussed once or maybe twice at an orientation, and that's it. And the rest of it is good luck. You know, go to the writing center if you get a chance, but otherwise, we're not going to tell you. Yeah, the writing center, I find, I mean, depends on the school, but the writing center is often just like, how do I fix my grammar and all that? You know, we, we oh, can yeah. mm -hmm. do a whole thing about what, what does it mean to fix grammar, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, oh, yes. Yep, and um, so it's like, please learn this entire skill of expository original writing or something like that. It's like, that's not... And do it on your own. Yeah. We're not going to tell you. The people in the writing center are not, and it's not their fault, it's not, they're not being, you know... All of the things that the people in the writing center are being trained to do are mostly like someone has gone through an American or similar to American education system, and they just need to improve, Indeed. you know, skills that have already been implanted in them. Whereas we're talking oh, about building new skills entirely, you know. Exactly. Yep. And the training for that really just well, first of all, I feel it's inappropriate uh, to expect that. The writing center would be able to address all of these things. Of course. And, you know, this is too much. And beyond that, we're talking, and, you know, I'm coming from the discipline of education, as are you. Um, what about somebody who's coming from engineering, or even worse, somebody who's coming from uh, computer engineering, which uh, at a large number of schools counts for a great majority of academic integrity violations because somebody says, oh, you copied your code off GitHub, and uh, that's unacceptable, despite the fact that uh, the majority of people who are out there working in the field are gladly copying things off of GitHub, and there are no clear standards of this, um, our writing center can't address that at all. Uh, they can really only address plagiarism in writing. So you know, there's this huge portion of things that are going unaddressed out there, but they are being punished whenever somebody feels like finding them punishing them. So, I'm what, hoping to look into that a bit more in my What what do you know? Um, like citation is are citational yes. practices completely different in some of these other places as well? Completely, one hundred percent completely. Um, I should state that uh, I serve on the honor review committee at uh, the University of Maryland, and as such, I've participated in a number of cases um, in my previous work as well. I have uh, been party to a number of uh, cases where plagiarism has been alleged, uh, in some cases by myself, in some cases by others, and uh, I have uh, had to deal with those cases uh, on an individual basis, and so at this point I can look back and say, well, what have been the interesting uh, features of each of these, I suppose, and uh, I can say that uh, one of the big things is, at the graduate level here, there are several departments which simply do not specify how they want citation to take place. 
Oh. And in fact, I've encountered several professors who take pride in the fact that they do not actually specify how citation is to take place. They simply want some sort of citation to occur. Uh, they want sources to be acknowledged. Uh, there's certainly a trend that's uh, moving towards that at the undergraduate level in some cases, where people say, look, just, you know, make sure anytime you have uh, taken words or ideas from some other place, say, according to, say, where you got it from, provide a web address or a hyperlink or something like that, and then just keep going. That's happening a bit more, but what we find is people who have been in the game for quite a long time are now just kind of saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to say, use whatever format you're comfortable with and uh, make sure you've cited people. Okay, great. Well, what happens when you get somebody from the subcontinent uh, who says, well, I went to school for my undergrad and master's, uh, learning that, you know, I don't have to actually identify uh, in the paper itself where ideas came from. What I need to do is, at the end of it, specify what sources I have used to construct my argument. And in fact, that's uh, exactly what we see uh, in some of the cases of Foucault in his work. He was accused of uh, plagiarism because he was outright quoting uh, Kant in some places and uh, certain other philosophers. And uh, North Americans largely were saying, oh, well, you have been just basically plagiarizing. You've been ripping their words off. And uh, Foucault's response to that was, I cited them at the end of my essay, and uh, if you're dumb enough that you don't recognize where I've been using Kant's words, well, that's on you, not on me. Um, well, that's all well and good for a scholar at the level, but what about if you have somebody who's working towards their PhD who has not specified, uh, using quotation marks, where they've taken someone else's words? They have, however, specified that uh, they used that person's words uh, at the end of the paper, saying, I used the source. But a professor says, uh, you know, that wasn't enough, and therefore I'm accusing you of plagiarism. That person is now liable to defend him or herself and could quite easily lose their visa, be kicked out of the university, and uh, be done with their program. I, I think of a couple of students I've had, and I wasn't a, a, a credit bearing institution, so uh, the students obviously needed to pass the class, but that was it. It was just whether or not they passed the class. And I remember having one student who was very, I don't like to say weak and strong, but she was getting the work done. Um, okay. And uh, I had a couple of other students who, who, you know, were struggling with the work. And yeah. we had a, a writing assignment, and, you know, one day, suddenly, two of them came in with very strong writing assignments, and I was... But, you know, I was happy at first because I realized they were kind of the same, <laughs> and yeah. then, and then I yep. saw that they resembled the, the assignment handed in by the same, by the woman who was, uh, you know, the the, the state more stable student, and I was just like, come on, come on, and I had to talk to all three of them about it, and yeah. I realized that it wasn't, it like we were talking about a concept that was entirely foreign to them yes yep, yep, yep. so like I, I still had to I mean it wasn't a place where you could really be expelled but I had to talk to them about the fact that we, we, we can't we, can, we, we can't do that here <laughs> and I felt bad but I had to talk to them about it, you know 
So this is where I feel like your concept is very applicable as well, the idea of uh, the altruistic shield. Um, because in so many cases, it's blatant, it's obvious, and it's manifest, I guess, that what's happening is people are unaware of the standards for any kind of academic integrity policy. And what's really happening is they're attempting to navigate them, and they're attempting to learn them, and they're attempting to do exactly what students do, which is support one another, uh, learn, uh, progress through the stages of language development, if we're thinking about that. And particularly if we take it from a language development perspective, you know, anytime we're going from one interlanguage to another, we're developing these new understandings of what exactly it is uh, we need to do, how does grammar work, how do transitions work, how do we fulfill this particular language act that is the essay. Um, and yet, inside of that, as the language teaching professionals, I have found constantly that teachers are willing to say, oh, well, this person you know, stole this from somewhere else, they copy and pasted, therefore, They've committed a terrible act, and I need to punish them for them. And uh, that, to me, is intriguing, because I feel like it does come from the same place of, I've been working to teach these people this uh, valuable skill. I've been attempting to do this incredibly selfless and uh, important thing. And, oh my god, how dare they throw this in my face. Therefore, I must punish them. Um, and... I find that that really tends to take place among those people who seem to oftentimes have the greatest orientation towards uh, saying that they're going to help other people. Um, to give that to a more specific example, a few years back I was working at the University of Oregon. I had to take a break to uh, give a uh, presentation and I was fortunate enough to get somebody to proctor a test for my class so that I could do so. And uh, this person, uh, whose name I will not mention, uh, is still currently very, very focused on social justice issues and has made this uh, uh, their uh, real focus in terms of uh, language teaching and acquisition. This person uh, was proctoring the test, two of my students, and of course, you know, one out of three students uh, in this country right now speaks Chinese. Um, this person uh, was proctoring the test to my students, uh, good friends, were uh, in the front row. One of them finished the test a little bit early and uh, stood up, gave the test to uh, the person who was proctoring, went right to the door, and then called over to her friend and said, uh, Hey, I'll be right outside in Chinese. Well, she said it in Chinese. And so this person who was proctoring the test immediately said, Oh, you spoke, therefore you're cheating took both tests from both people, uh, sequestered them, and said, you both fail, and uh, I'm going to tell your teacher that uh, you need to not pass this class. And it took a huge amount of effort to actually go back in and say, Look, let's figure out what was actually going on. And the mere fact that somebody says something to somebody else in Chinese uh, does not necessarily mean that they've committed a crime or that they deserve to be punished. And uh, it really took a lot of doing. I was very grateful because in this case, uh, the person had not actually submitted the students for uh, academic review. If they had, 
I, because I had not been there, would not have been able to even uh, write in and say, please rescind this. They would have simply had to go through the system. So this to me is a huge area that has been underanalyzed and is something that uh, really does need to be addressed in English language education here in the United States. I, yeah, I... It's something that I think a lot of people in our field don't even think about. Like, I know we do think about generally the cultural differences. And I mean, of course, look, those are important. <laughs> but that's that's as far as it goes with us, you know, in, in the field. We're I just, can hear you doing the like quotation marks in the air, and it's awesome. Yeah, you know, because that we, we we you know we're like, well, we have to learn about culture. We have to be culturally competent. And it's just like, but um, like there's we. One of the things that we do have to learn is that if the expectation of, let's say, academic English, right, or any type of, of, of you know, discipline like that, we uh, we have to consider the expectations or what's considered appropriate and not appropriate, right? You know, the appropriateness-based approach is not being, you know, beneficial yeah. for people. Um so speaking of those things, since I didn't actually ask you the thing that I said I was going to ask you when we talked about this, uh, you brought up the concept of the language of greater control, and I think it's actually relevant to sort of what we're talking about here, because, um, well, why don't you explain it, since uh, you're going to know more about it than I am, but the language of greater control is what we're talking about here, so. So, if, yeah, if, I mean, to, I'll just, you know. A slight correction: the language of a greater communication. Greater communication. Um, oh, well, that would be yes. why I couldn't find it when I was looking for it. So uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, this is the funny thing about it is, if you do actually go and Google it, um, you're not going to find too much about it because it is a rather cloistered concept. It's something that you find in uh, international development agencies. It's language that you find from uh, USAID something that you would find from other uh, coordinating agencies, places like FHI 360, um, and a number of other think tanks that would actually fulfill uh, work on the ground. Um, places like uh, IIE, for example. And this concept here, the language of greater communication, it's something that is completely divorced from any notions uh, that derive from actual uh, applied linguistics or even just theoretical linguistics is purely a concept that comes from development language. And when we talk about development, uh, this really, when we're talking about this, we're talking about this notion of modernization of aid dollars that are going from donor countries to recipient countries for the purpose of uh, supposed improvement of certain aspects of the country, whether that be the economy or healthcare or uh, infrastructure, whatever it might be. When it comes to language, uh, really, things are kind of absent, um, except in as much as they are used to kind of justify the existing practices. So when we speak about uh, the language of greater Really what that means is a language that is used uh, in a large geographical area uh, by a large number of speakers. And yet, really what we're saying there is uh, a language that is used by a, lot, a white people 
in a lot of white countries. Um, to give this uh, a clearer example, um, this really is used in Africa for the most part. And what we're talking about here is uh, the colonial languages, language like uh, languages like uh, English, French, uh, Portuguese, and uh, you know Italian in the case of uh, Eritrea and uh, Somalia. And really, the idea here is, oh well, there was this language that was spoken by the people who came in here and uh, took everything over, but they also took over a bunch of other places, and therefore this language. It's perceived as being prestigious because it's used in education, it's used in high levels of government, it's used throughout the world, and therefore it offers greater economic possibilities than whatever other language we might speak at home. And therefore we're going to refer to it as the language of greater communication uh, rather than the colonial language. And we're going to say that our education system, which under colonial authorities oftentimes, consisted of, if you are able even to get into uh, the education system, it's all going to be conducted in the colonial language, um, we're just going to say that, well, yes, of course, that's justified, because by going to school in the medium of language X, we are going to have greater economic possibilities, and clearly that is manifest and does not require any justification, and therefore we are going to pursue it as long as possible. Now, the funny thing about that is, of course, it really only refers to uh, colonial languages. If we're uh, speaking of Africa in particular here, um, this justification is never used to look at saying, oh, well, why don't we teach Arabic in school? It's never used, despite the fact that Arabic would be incredibly useful uh, as a lingua franca in communicating with people throughout uh, the Sahel region and even the uh, super uh, Saharan region. Um, anybody who has uh, Islam as a religion is going to have a little bit of that, just as part of uh, what they're going to be able to manipulate there. Um, it's not used to justify Swahili as a language of instruction in any country other than Tanzania, and even there, uh, that's falling out of favor. So. The funny thing here is, despite the rationale, it's only used uh, when we cherry-pick colonial languages, not when we're talking about actual languages that might provide an economic benefit to people. So it's a fascinating concept, and it's one that in practice does not actually apply to anything other than colonial mentalities. So I have a few questions based on that. Um, Please. One thing I will mention that in my introduction I called it like a greater control like I did and I'm going to leave it uh -huh. there because I think it's funny but uh, <laughs> because, I agree uh, I like it <laughs> uh, second that's not a question the actual question is so you call it language greater communication but also uh -huh. refer to it as the lingua franca now that's the phrase I heard a while ago now that's one of the ac acronyms I, I heard when I le learned um, things about like English language teaching was English as a lingua franca, right? Oh yes. And yep. uh, I didn't know until a couple of years after that that uh, that other things could be considered lingua francas. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, just because I was so English as a lingua franca, you know, I never used to never think about it, obviously. Yeah. Um, but do you think there's much of a difference between what is meant by language of greater communication 
and uh, something being a lingua franca? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there's, uh, let's take it a couple of different ways. Uh, when we do speak of English as a lingua franca, um, you know, a huge part of that is Jennifer Jenkins' ideas of what that really means. Um, and, you know, what is the grammar, what is the lexus, um, what is the usage of English as a lingua franca? How do we define this? How can we establish a lexicon? How can we establish a dictionary, etc.? Um, and that, to me, is hugely problematic because it's really people looking at uh, the usage of English in quotation marks here uh, for a number of purposes of communication amongst people who do not have it as their, quote, native language uh, to accomplish a number of different tasks, which, of course, is what we do with language. Um, but they're attempting to codify it and say, this is what it is uh, so that we can actually teach it and make sure that everybody knows the standard lexicon. Um, I find that hugely problematic um, because really it's attempting to put the cart before the horse and say, here's exactly what you should use to do these things and to accomplish these functions rather than what you are doing to accomplish these functions. Um, and of course, it's being done externally by academics, oftentimes from the West, uh, trying to put together these dictionaries, etc., in institutions that are far removed from what's actually going on on the ground. So that's one thing about English as a lingua franca. In terms of the actual on the ground, how we use a lingua franca, um, this is a standard thing. This is something that happens. It's natural. It's exactly what happens in language all the time. Um, it's the most, well, I would probably argue the most basic feature of language, which is finding some sort of symbolic means, some shared symbolic means uh, to communicate uh, with other people for whatever purposes they may be, oftentimes for business, but, you know, also just to share stories and uh, be human with other people. If we're talking about that, um, then English as a lingua franca, I, I'm all in. Um, it's something that happens all the time. I see it regularly uh, on campus. And I'm sure you do too, you know, uh, when you see our students speaking with one another, um, that's exactly what they're doing, you know, they're using English to accomplish particular uh, goals, and they're doing it successfully, and you know what, they're doing it in a way that maybe we would say is ungrammatical or inappropriate, um, but it's not, it's, they're, you know, they're doing exactly what they need to in order to accomplish their goals, uh, and we don't even figure into it. But I would say there's the third part of that, which is this idea of language, uh, English in this case, for greater communication, which really revolves around this idea that there is one standard language which uh, can be taught, codified, um, set down in rules, and shared by all, and used for these wonderful economic purposes, which of course it, it's completely divorced from any ideas of time and change, which of course are completely inherent to language as well. Um, you know, if you go back several hundred years, the English language was completely non-prestigious and uh, was really, you know, a combination of kind of Old Norse and uh, bad French. You know, now is perceived as, oh, we must follow these rules, our spelling is set down in stone, etc. 
So I, uh, I really do feel that uh, this notion of English as a lingua franca, if we just use that as a lens to see things in terms of, you know, how are people using English to accomplish particular goals, very useful. If we use it as a prescriptive lens to say this is what should happen, it's problematic. And when we flip over to saying English is a constant uh, entity which can be codified and it's a language of greater communication, whatever the heck that means, um, and we can judge others on their proficiency of it and you know, say that that's going to be the best usage of our educational time, that, again, is what we problem So there's a lot in there. Um, one thing I'll mention is that uh, I think it makes some sense. Like, in English as a lingua franca, the way I learned it, I hadn't really thought of any of the impressive marginalization issues and all that, but um, when I learned it nine years ago, uh, you know, like you're saying, as a descriptor for the way people are um, making use of English to communicate with one another because they both know some parts of English and are finding a way to make meaning together, well then, I mean, it's the concept, like, look, people do... English is used in the world, right? So if it is used, yeah. is it automatically, you know, harmful for the language to exist? Like, that's not the case. Um, yeah. it, so if you're just describing, like, these two people who are in a, let's say, professional or a work situation, and one speaks Spanish and one speaks Chinese, you know, as a as an L1, and they're using English to communicate, like, there's... That, that's that's just you know that's language right that's that's interesting it's cool that's that's yeah. authentic whatever um, not that it can't be done badly you know harmfully but you know uh, whereas what's interesting that you pointed out when you said language of greater communication you said whatever greater means I think that's actually the key there because what they mean what they're trying to say in terms of language of greater communication is greater means two things, right? Greater can mean a difference in quantity, but it can also mean a difference in quality, right? Yes, very good point. So when they say it, when they, I, I haven't seen the documents where it shows up, so I'm sure, but I don't know for sure. Uh, what they mean is that greater communication, they mean more communication. That's what they're trying to say, right? That you will find it more, you know, easier to communicate. So therefore, more yes. more communication will be facilitated. That's what they're trying to say. But the underlying message, though, is the quality. What they're considering to be the quality of the communication, right? So when they you yep. know, they, they yep. mean greater, like I am the greatest type of thing. Like that's what they are saying without meaning to say it. Um, and that's where the problem comes in because when it's like if you are just saying. You know, if, if all of the oppression and all of those things hadn't occurred and it really was the case that there was this language that had just organically sprung up, which we know is not, you know, that's not what happened. Uh, but let's just say that was the case briefly, then uh, I suppose it would be possible to unproblematically say that people should learn this language because there will be more communication. But uh, oh, oh, no, 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 no. I disagree well, I was speaking, um, being hypothetically, but yeah. I'm sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, I was saying, but the way they're doing it is 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 not that at all. So what they're saying, they're they're trying to say that it's uh, it would make communication better, and that is not. But well, there's a, there's an even more insidious 
feature to this here too, which is something that we don't necessarily think about so much in English language teaching. And it's this notion of uh, what's your native language? Oh, yeah. What do you speak? Uh, and this is something that, of course, Nelson Flores has uh, really taken to task in recent years, uh, along with Jonathan Rosa and uh, several other people. Um, but uh, I really, for a very, very long time, this notion of a native language didn't exist. Uh, and when I say a very long time, I'm talking, you know, uh, up until probably about the uh, relatively, like, the 1700s or so, there was no concept of what's your native language. It was very much just, well, you know, we speak various languages to uh, attend to various purposes. And that was considered normal. Um, and I would even say that uh, up until probably the early 1900s in the United States, it was very, very normal for most people to speak multiple languages and not even think about it. It was just something you did in order to accomplish various goals. Uh, I'm from Oregon. Uh, on the west coast of the United States, and uh, I uh, grew up seeing a bunch of signs around me that had these weird words that you know, I just kind of accepted. Um, come to find out later, they are from uh, the Chinook jargon, or Chinookwawa, uh, if you want to use the uh, Grand Ronde term for it. And uh, this was a language that was shared by people throughout the Pacific Northwest. And by that I'm saying, uh, British Columbia all the way down to Northern California and all the way uh, east over to uh, Western Alberta. Um, and this was uh, a language that pretty much everybody used for trade purposes. It didn't belong to anybody. Um, nobody really considered it like, you know, oh, this is my language. It was just something that everybody spoke, everybody understood. And you still can find, if you go back and uh, look at the newspapers, uh, plenty of articles from local uh, newspapers uh, that used plenty of words from it because everybody just understood what these words were. Um, so uh, really, this notion of, oh, well, if we only speak this language, it'll be easier to understand everybody. This is actually a very recent notion, and it goes towards this idea of native speakerism, and it goes towards this idea of, uh, you know, what is your native language, and what is your other language, what is your alternate language. Um, which goes against the reality of usage of language among people, which is that multilingualism is the norm. Multidialectalism is the norm. We tell ourselves this story, we kind of uh, attend to this narrative that, uh, you know, this is my native language, this is my native dialect, blah, blah, blah. Despite the fact that we use multiple dialects every day, we use multiple languages every day, and don't necessarily think about it, but we tell ourselves that, yeah, we're using this one language, English, whatever it might be. Um, and I find that that ends up feeding into this notion of, oh, if only we have this one other language, then we can all understand each other. And it presents language as unitary, divorced from time, divorced from any kind of uh, progression, and doesn't really understand how language works. So... When you say that um, most folks in, in Oregon or just in the Pacific Northwest and slightly east of there were using uh, the Chinook language or the language of the Chinook, was that uh, like Anglos who had moved there, or are you saying that the indigenous people were using that? This was a, so the language was originally developed, uh, and this is Chinook jargon. It's referred to as Chinook jargon or Chinookwawa. 
the uh, Confederated Tribes, the Grand Ronde, uh, are kind of the curators of this language at this point, uh, when they were all forced to uh, meet together on the reservation there. Um, you know, nobody shared a common language, and so they picked the one language that uh, everybody could understand, which was the jargon. Uh, and so that's basically used as their native language at this point. Um, but uh, going back into the past, this was it was very much a trade language. This was just something that people used when they got together to uh, you know, sell goods or take care of whatever else the case might be. Um, but as more people came into the area, they realized very quickly, well, this is very useful. Everybody understands uh, what we say if we're using this. And so it was used not just by uh, indigenous folks in the area, but it was used by anybody who's coming through. So French trappers, uh, British folks coming through, um, anybody from Spain who happened to be coming through the area. And uh, actually, it was used as the language of communication in the canneries in British Columbia amongst uh, anybody who's working there. So for a long time, there were a lot of uh, immigrants from southern China who did not actually learn English. They learned uh, Chinook jargon because that's what was going to be most useful for communicating with anybody else in the factory. Ah, no, that's fascinating. I was curious about it. Um, yeah, so when we think about, because I try to, on, on the show, get to where I'm able to ask a question and get to some sort of like, and now what can we do about it? Uh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Because okay. I do, I find that sometimes on with podcasts and articles, people are just like, and here's a problem, and nothing happens. Um, so I just, I don't find that very useful. But there's, you're talking about something that, that is basically symptomatic of different types of native speakerism, of a lot of the issues that, you know, folks who are interested in this are already talking about. Out. Um, but oh, yes. this this phrase, you know, language greater communication, um, it's an, you know an outgrowth of of uh, you know prescriptivism. So I, I, it yeah. seems like we can change the term, but or we can change the phrase. But like ultimately, what we're talking about is prescriptivism as as its as its you know progenitor as, as as its problem. So what you know we're talking about imposing languages or languages that have been imposed over hundreds of years in places that don't necessarily have the power to exist very well. Um, so we're over here in the United States at the moment. What can we actually do to work against this sort of language policy, you know, where we see it, I mean, you know, it, yeah, what what can we do to work against this sort of language policy, especially when it comes to places that we aren't actually in? So, uh, you know, a big part of that, I think, uh, you know, I tend to go back to the work of Ivan Illich and say, you know, is it even our place to say that? Um, and there's a well-documented uh, discussion between David Crystal and uh, Joseph Tisal in Tisal Quarterly, where David Crystal was saying that uh, and, uh, if you're using the colonial language to do anything, then you know you're actually just you know, supporting an, uh, an imperialist regime. And if you really want to be uh, you know, an independent and real speaker and a real person. 
you would have to shake off these shackles of colonial language and you know, go forth and do what you're going to do in your own, you know, uh, you know, scare quotes, your native language. Um, to which uh, Joseph Song responded saying, look, I'm from Nigeria. I grew up uh, with multiple languages. If I want to write something in English, that's my choice. Um, you know, if uh, Chinua Achebe says, I'm going to write a book in English, are we supposed to then say, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's going to be part of a colonial agenda? You know, uh, if Ngugi uh, Wationgo decides that uh, he's going to write something in English but is going to include uh, other words from other languages, what are we going to do with that? I think the biggest thing that uh, needs to happen is a conversation. And for us here in the United States, if we're talking about uh, teaching English as a second slash foreign slash additional language, um, the biggest thing is to not necessarily be super prescriptive about it, but to have a conversation and to say, well, what is it that we're hoping to do? What is it that uh, we're hoping to accomplish by learning another language? And I think another very, very big part of this, which is still very problematic in a lot of uh, institutions, I find, is to utilize uh, the, and I, you know, again, scare quotes here, native language, and use that for comparative purposes to say, how do you say this? How exactly uh, do you frame this in the language that you normally speak? Are there different ways that you frame it? Um, can you tell me about them? How do you use it for different purposes, etc.? Um, I find that there are a lot of people who still uh, subscribe to this idea of any usage of the mother tongue or the L1 in the classroom is extremely harmful and should be avoided at all costs, should be punished, uh, which again feeds right back into that colonial narrative. Instead, I think it's more important to have that conversation and say, how do you do this? What's the word for it? Can you tell me about it? What's the concept here? You know, and what exactly are you hoping to get from this? Um, how can I help you with that? What do you want to know from me? How can we come to know each other a little bit better? That, I think, is the most important part right there, rather than for us to be prescriptive in saying, oh, you need to do this now. To give an example there, uh, just recently uh, in Rwanda, there has been a bit of a kerfuffle in that the uh, DFID, which currently, and I don't know what the hell's going to happen after Brexit, is the Department for International Development uh, of the British government. They uh, were funding a lot of textbooks, which were going to be provided in the Rwanda, which is one of the languages spoken there, uh, because uh, the British Council has now uh, officially come out and said, we don't support using English as a language of instruction uh, until after elementary school. Um, but a lot of people in Rwanda have now said, well, but we want it to be the language of instruction in elementary school. Um, so right there, should we be saying, don't use English in elementary school? And is that our place? Who gets to say that? Um, do we get to be prescriptive about it, or should we have a conversation about it? And should we then say, look, this is not up to us? I, I don't necessarily have a great answer right there, but I do feel like it's not 
the greatest thing for us externally to be saying, do this, rather than for us to say, let's have a conversation about it and understand what you want to do and what your purposes are, and let's try to work together to make that happen. Well, I mean, is, is it possible that one of the issues that we're having in the discussion, like there's that whole, like, should we be having this conversation, and then there's the whole, you know, the actual details of why they're saying no we want to use English and mm-hmm. you know the question there and I'm not saying that they're wrong to say that I'm just, you know just sort of asking the question of like so maybe it's I, I, I speculate that it might be partially because the you know domination of English which you know happened in the last century or so or maybe a little longer than that uh, happened along the same time as the explosion in global communication and so like it, we may have gone so far down the line especially with technology and the internet and things like that that to you know try to and it's not going to happen but to try to reverse it and say well you know maybe they should you know we should move away from that like of course the places where it has become so prized you know just as just cultural capital to attain english and we're gonna just say no 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 don't do that they're not going to want to give up the cultural capital that comes with attaining english so 100 yep um you know we can sit here and say it's bad but like uh, or you know, or we you know, one could say that, but uh, it's there. It, it it's a very valuable thing. For what what the value is is a different question, but it's like very powerful, very valuable. And there's the question too, though. I, I there's two aspects to that, which are very very important in what you bring up. One is is there really a value to it? Do we know that? Um, there is a very, there's very little work that's actually been done on what the returns to speaking one language versus another actually are. Uh, Francois Kran is a, an economist out of Switzerland who is one of the few people who's actually looked at this. Um, and he's found that really it's, it's not that beneficial to just speak one language versus another. The greatest benefit comes from being able to speak multiple languages. Um, he's tried to use uh, natural experiments in, the, in Quebec and uh, Switzerland to try to look at you know, what happens from uh, being educated in one language versus another versus multiple languages. And what he finds pretty consistently is that it's not you know, saying, oh, I was educated in this language and you know, that gives me this advantage. That's not it. It's being able to communicate in multiple languages. There's also uh, his argument, which is that um, really what you want to be thinking of if you're going to be a good economist about this is what language is going to be used for business purposes. And especially in these countries that we're talking about where we're saying, oh, let's use English as a medium of instruction. Well, what language is business actually taking place in on a day-to-day basis? And English is not yet. Uh, business is taking place in multiple other languages, all of which are far more useful for actually getting things done. Um, but English is still prized as being this language that's somehow going to afford you 
more opportunities, etc. Um, now, of course, that brings up the second point, which is, okay, so should we say don't use English to do these things? And of course, as you've just uh, indicated, now that doesn't work either. Um, I think the thing to do here is start having a conversation about, well, what is it we're hoping to accomplish with English? Is it just that, you know, by magically going to school in this medium, somehow you're going to have greater opportunity? What is that opportunity? You know, how is it going to materialize? Um, what is it that you're hoping it's going to give you? Are we saying that you have to have this in order to get into university? Now, that's perfectly reasonable if we're in a place like Uganda, where every university in the country is going to be doing most of its instruction in English. Okay, that's fine. But are we saying that just because you speak English, magically you're going to have uh, more opportunity? What is that opportunity? What is the nature of that opportunity? I, that's the conversation to have, I think. Um, and, I, I, you know, it, it, once again, to take it and say, well, we can't do that, you know, don't use English as the language of instruction, instead use this language. Um, I, even that right there, I feel like you know, there's a huge problem in saying that. Um, to take an American example about this, for a very long time, there were several institutes in the United States uh, which were designed to uh, basically train Native Americans to be good white folks, for lack of a better term. So the Carlisle School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, or uh, the, uh, I, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but in Salem, Oregon, uh, the other school, which uh, aimed to make sure that Native Americans spoke English uh, and spoke only English and were able to uh, hold down a job, etc. Um, and of course, the you know, dictum in all these places was only speak English, but in practice, you know, as soon as the supervisors weren't watching, people would start using other languages uh, in order to try to make things happen, because that's what you do. Um, and that was back in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, etc. This is exactly what happens, is we don't really have one language of instruction. There is no inherent benefit in speaking one language, and language as in quotation marks, versus another, it's really a question of how do people interact with one another. Um, so the more we can get away with, uh, the more we can get away from, rather, this notion of, okay, which language has the greatest economic reward, uh, and the more we can get towards what are we trying to do here, the better it's going to be for everybody. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So that's just sort of... That's a nice little, nice little pin in there. Um, so thanks so much for talking to me about all of these things. Uh, this was you, a really interesting way to cover a lot of language policy-related topics um, because I haven't done as much on policy here, although I'd like to do a little bit more of it. Um, so thank you for talking to me, and um, I well. I'm glad to have had you on because it gave us a different sort of insight into the things that I'm interested in discussing. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I apologize. I tend to yak a lot about things that I like. But that's what I want, though. I mean, I mean, I don't want to insult you, but I feel like this show is basically nerds going off, and so uh, it's just what I want people to be able to do. 
All right. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Yes, same with you, Brandon.